Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Micah. We'll be looking at chapters 1 and 2 in Micah. It's page 923 in your Black Pew Bibles. Page uh, 923. The word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, when he saw, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you people, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images will be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation for the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It is reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not to Gath, weep not at all, and Bella Apara, Afara, excuse me, roll yourself, roll yourselves in dust. Pass on your way, inhabitant, inhabitants of Saphir, in nakedness and shame, the inhabitants of Zanon. Do not come out. The lamentation of Bethazel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Marath wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness of the steeds to the chariots inhabitants of Lashish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth, Gath, the houses of Ashib, Ashzib, and shall be deceitful, a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adalam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. For the children of your delight, make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster 
In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, from their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanliness that destroys with their grievous destruction. If a man go about and, under, and utter uh, wine and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he will be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together in a sheep, like sheep in a fold, like flock in a pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Mike is a minor prophet. Um, several years ago, we, we taught through the minor prophets, but we didn't finish. There were a few that we did not teach through. Micah's one of those right after Christmas, the new year. I thought, we're going to teach through Micah, and then um, we'll have a, a few more Sundays of doing some other things, different text, and then eventually we're going to get into the book of Daniel. Micah, chapter 1 and, and 2. When you hear the word prophecy, what comes to mind? prophecy. Usually you think of a prediction of future events, events of course yet to come. Some associate that word with eschatology which is study of end times. If you remember over Christmas we looked at a few specific Old Testament texts that foretold of Jesus' birth, of his death and resurrection. But prophets typically were predicting events that were going to be fulfilled almost immediately. In fact, about 1% of the Old Testament prophecies concern events that are still future to us. So sometimes we think of prophecy, we think of what's coming ahead. But by and large, Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled already. And so what we're doing is we're reading about future events but, of course, now we're looking back on those events that have already taken place. So I think that's something that we have to keep in mind. And so when we're studying prophets, one of the things you always want to, the question you always want to answer is, has this prophecy been fulfilled, and if so, when? Was it completely fulfilled, or was it partially fulfilled at one time in history and yet to be fulfilled at another? So there, those are some questions we'll answer over these next few weeks about this text. And, and prophetic books, there's 
major prophets, and we're talking about writing prophets. Aiden, there's prophets in the Old Testament. Like think about Nathan, Elijah, Elisha. They were prophets, right? The mouthpieces of God. God would give them a message for his people or for a, a, a certain peoples, and he wanted them to deliver that message. But what I'm referring to here are writing prophets. So there's a lot of prophets, but not all of them were inspired to write down God's word for us. But these prophets are writing prophets. You have major prophets and minor prophets. Now, what's the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet? Yeah, the length of the book. It's not about importance. It's about the size of the book. And so Micah is a minor prophet. And unless you understand the events that took place when the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians and the southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians and then the exile that took place for 70 years in Babylon and then return of the exiles back to Jerusalem, some of these prophets get kind of confused. They all kind of run together and gets, it's, it's a little difficult to figure that out. So it's real important to understand 722 B.C. when the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. A few years later, there's a change in world power. The Babylonians took over, and they exiled the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. They spent 70 years in Babylon, but when the Persians became the next world superpower, Cyrus the king, he allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. So those are, are, are real important events. And the prophets, whether major or minor, all of these things were occurring during very tumultuous times. There's a lot of upheaval socially, economically, a lot of things going on in topsy-turvy in, in world history. And it, it only took place over a period of a several hundred years. So it's a short amount of time that we see all these prophecies being given. We see Micah was, verse 1, was from Moresheth. It's a village in Judah. He prophesied, verse 1 tells us, during the reigns of King Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And I'll encourage you, if you want some backdrop, background on this, 2 Kings, starting in, in chapters 16 or so through 20, you'll see what was going on during the times where Micah prophesied. He predicted the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions that would cause the fall of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and also Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom. But he had actually had influence. Micah's unique in several ways. He actually had influence, uh, unlike many of the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 18 tells us that it was the ministry of Micah that encouraged the great reformation that took place during King Hezekiah's reign. One of the things you need to remember, the northern kingdom, they didn't have any godly kings. Their first, when the kingdom split under Rehoboam, you had King David, his son, King Solomon. King Solomon turned away from the Lord. He was led away by his many wives to idolatry. God told him that the kingdom would be split, but not in his lifetime. He was like, whew, thank goodness for that. But during his son's reign, Rehoboam, the kingdom split. You had a northern kingdom, you had a southern kingdom. So what's going to happen, we're going to use terms interchangeably. Northern kingdom, the capital is Samaria. 
Also, we refer to it as Israel. So when I refer to those three words, we use them simultaneous. They're, they're all synonyms. The southern kingdom, the capital is Jerusalem. It's called Judah. So, not, so you won't be confused when I use those, those terms. And Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. They ministered during the same time period. But what's unique about Micah, one is that the Lord actually used his words. There was reform during Hezekiah's day. The second thing that's unique about Micah is he prophesied and he delivered messages for, for both the, the, to both the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now, by and large, his words are for the, those in the southern kingdom, for Judah. But we'll see in this first chapter, he also addresses Samaria, the northern kingdom as well. You can outline the book. I'm, I'm real big on outlines. This is how I, my mind operates. I like to be organized a little bit. And here's how these, uh, this book is kind of outlined. And this is how we'll divide our teaching text every week. Each of these speeches or sermons or oracles, they're all inter introduced by the word here. So it's very easy to, to outline this book. Okay. And the big idea, the big theme of this book is who is like God? Who is like Yahweh? Who is like God? Who is like him in his justice? Who is like him in his mercy? And we see throughout the book, it's a, an intertwining of words of comfort and hope and also words of judgment. And we see that a lot in all the prophets, especially here in Micah. So in verses 1 through 5, there's a rhetorical question asked. Rhetorical meaning what? See, that wasn't a rhetorical question, right? A rhetorical question is one you don't answer, right? So there's a rhetorical question, and that question is, who is like God? Who is like God? And, and we see that. Look at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah. Now, Micah's name means who is like God. And so there's a bookends in this, in this prophet. He begins the prophet, who is like God? He mentions his name. And then he answers that question in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1 by painting this picture of a God coming down from the temple in judgment, and when he lands on the earth, everything melts under his feet. He's coming in judgment. Who is like God? Boom. Right? But then in chapter 7, verse 18, flip over there real quick. It's just a couple pages. 718. Look what it says. This is the end of the book. Who is like God? Who is like you? Right? Speaking to God. Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. And so the last book in, in chapter 7, paints a, a, another picture of the same God but it's one that portrays God as he is, merciful, pardon iniquity, and pouring out love. So both these pictures are accurate. You have one of justice, right? And you have one of mercy and grace. So they're two pictures, but they're both accurate and true. So God, he's going to judge the northern kingdom. He's going to judge the southern kingdom. And what he wants to do is purify a remnant for himself, who in his amazing grace, he's going to redeem in order to accomplish his saving purpose among the nations. Judgment here in the, 
in this prophet Micah is seen as a means to God's redemptive purpose. Why is he judging? Why is he coming out so hard? Because he accomplishes this salvation for his people, the remnant, through judgment. So let's look at verse 2. Again, you see that word here, right? Here. I, I was thinking about this word here. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, right? O earth and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. There is a courtroom scene. But it brought up thoughts of, of, of a mom. And I just think about rowdy boys. You know, girls and boys are different. And you think, well, I got girls and they're rowdy. Yeah, it's just a different rowdiness. Different level of noise. Anybody experience that? Yeah, it's just something like girls are just girls. But boys, it's something about boys. They're just sitting there, right? I got a boy. He sits there. You're talking to him. He's doing this. And you're like, why are you doing that? He's like, what? 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 Right? Yeah, just making noise. Boys are just noise. They're just, they got the, the cabinet doors, and they're just doing like this. They're just opening and shutting, opening and shutting, opening and shutting. They don't even know what they're doing. They're just making noise. But if you've had boys, you've had the probably the pleasure of getting up in the middle of the night. Maybe it's going to the bathroom. Maybe it's hearing noise. Maybe it's a baby crying. Maybe it's to do whatever. And then you, you've had this experience, I'm sure, where you step on the, the Lego village that he's been building all day. And of course, it, it just destroys the village. But then what happens, you're laying beside the Legos, rolling back and forth, holding your stone-bruised heel, right? <laughs> Writhing in pain. So you've destroyed the village, but you're also laying on the ground um, holding your hurt foot. Well, God, he comes in judgment, and he, he comes off his throne, and he, it, it, this picture of him landing upon the earth. But God doesn't have the problem that we have. He is a God who treads upon the high places on the earth. The mountains melt under him. The valleys split open like wax before the fire, like waters pour down on a steep place. One commentator talks about this being a court case situation. He says, God appears as witness for the prosecution with incriminating evidence to present against the peoples of the world. He is witness, plaintiff, and judge at one and the same time. For he has the knowledge of wrongdoing, the right and concern to prosecute, and the wisdom and authority to judge with uprightness. God has made a covenant with his people, and his people have been rebellious. They haven't kept their the covenant. They've gone after idols. They're not just in their dealings with people. And God is going to judge. He treads upon the high places, the altars. The high places where they built the altars to the idol and worship idols. So he's destroying these places. And rightly so, right? There's a violation of not only commandment one, but also commandment two. God has no trouble in his judgment. When God pours out his judgment, usually for Israel, for his people, that was a good thing because he's going to judge and he's going to deliver them. 
But when I say God is going to judge, he's going to judge his own people, not Assyria. Assyria at this point in time is the thorn in Israel's flesh. They're the world superpower. They're pagans. And they're taking over the world. They're barbaric. They're brutal. They're godless. But God's not... He's not doing to the Assyrians what he did to the Egyptians. No, he's, this judgment that he's pronouncing is going to be upon his own, own people. In fact, the, the Lord is going to use the Assyrians to be his instruments of judgment upon the northern kingdom in 722 and also the southern kingdom in, in many ways. The Assyrians didn't exile the southern kingdom, but they sure gave them a lot of grief. See, the Lord's not coming to save Israel this time from their enemies. God is going to deal with Israel as an enemy. He lands on them like a ton of bricks, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. In verse 5, it tells us real briefly why God is, is responding in this crushing judgment. He mentions three things. This is for the transgression of Jacob, for the sins of the house of Israel, what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So we see transgression. We see sin. We see high places mentioned. These are capital offenses. Capital offenses. If, you're, if you watch, keep up with the news, there's a lot going on in Iran. A lot of upheaval. A lot of people are protesting and speaking out against their oppressive government. And what's the result? People in our, in our eyes are somewhat innocent. They're being executed. We think that's not really a capital offense. What they've done, is it really a deserving of death? Well, their government says so. For us, not... We don't have the same opinion. But here, this is, these are capital offenses, transgression, sins. They're building worship, worship centers, altars on the high places. And the description here is it's like the Lord's coming down. It's, it's an earthquake, it's a volcano, it's an avalanche all occurring simultaneously. James Montgomery Boyce, he writes about God leaving his throne. And that's the interesting thing, isn't it? He's not sending out his angels to do his bidding. No, God comes himself, right? This is what James Montgomery Boyce writes. This is intended to be terrifying, and it is. It's like the description the Romans gave of the Celtic warriors they encountered in their early conquest in Central Europe. To the Romans, the Celts were barbarians. It's kind of interesting for the Romans to say someone else a barbarian in it. It's kind of funny. In the battle, they wore no clothes at all. Now, if I was going to go fight, that's why I'd do it, Bo. Just go start naked, right? In battle, they wore no clothes at all. They painted themselves with bright colors and greased their hair so that it stood up fiercely from their heads as though they had been electrocuted. <laughs> I love James McGorman's voice. He's awesome. Before battle, they would be out of sight. Then all of a sudden, they would appear, swooping down from the hillside, shrieking loudly in their unknown languages, and they would fall upon the enemy ranks. And, and he says it scared the Romans witless. Micah is trying to paint a similar picture here, but the, the attacker is God himself, the creator. 
Who's like God in his justice? The second thing we see, verses 6 through 9, we see the northern kingdom will be judged firstly. Both Samaria and Jerusalem are indicted, right? Charges are brought against both. But Micah deals with the northern kingdom, that's Samaria, also called Israel, first. And if you remember, I'm real excited. I'm real excited. I'm giving a little plug here. On Wednesday nights, we're starting Beaver Kids. I'm real excited. We're going to eat good food. We start eating. The kids eat at 6. We eat at 6.30. The adults eat at 6.30. $5, the money goes to missions. We eat good food, but then we're going to have a Bible study. We're going to have hermeneutic study, how to study the scriptures. It's going to be really helpful for everybody, I think. We're going to do that for a couple months, and we finish that. We're going to do a review, a study of the story of the Bible. And it's something that's really, really, I think, really helpful and really important. We did it with our children, then we did it with our students, and then we did it with our adults. But what's happened, we've done that, but it's been several years. And so we've got a lot of new folks, and then we forget the story of the scriptures. But if you remember, those of you that have been through that, when the kingdom split, you had Israel. Saul was the first king. He wasn't very good. David was chosen and anointed to be king. He was awesome. But his son Solomon strayed. As a result, the kingdom's going to split. It happens during Rehoboam's reign, his son. Do you remember when it split? Twelve tribes of Israel, they're all they're split into two nations, Judah and Benjamin in the south, and all the ten tribes, the other ones were in the north. And the northern kingdom, they chose a man named Jeroboam. He was kind of an outcast, but he was awesome in battle. And so when they divided, they needed a leader, and they called Jeroboam to unite the ten tribes. He was godless. The northern kingdom, there was not one godly king among them. That's why I think they were exiled first in 722 B.C. But if you remember what Jeroboam did, you remember there was a place of worship. Where was the place of worship? For the, for the Jews? That's not a rhetorical question. Jerusalem. Good, William. God said, no, Jerusalem's going to be a place you're going to worship. And there was a temple built, Dave, right? David couldn't build it, but Solomon built it with, the, with all the materials that David gathered for him. That's where you go to worship. And you have these festivals and feasts throughout the calendar year. And they're commanded they have to go to Jerusalem to worship, offer sacrifices, But what did Jeroboam do? He was afraid once the kingdom split. I'm not going to let them go back to Jerusalem because what's going to happen? They're going to stay. They're not going to come back because he was scared of losing people. So what did Jeroboam do? Do you remember? Anybody remember? Yeah. He established two places in the northern kingdom, Bethel and Dan. But he didn't set up places to worship God. He set up places to worship golden calves. So from the very beginning, the northern kingdom, they were everything built, that kingdom was built upon idolatry. And for 200 years, the northern kingdom was idolatrous until Micah speaks of their demise. Look at verse 6. Therefore I will make Samaria, the northern kingdom, a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down their stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. Do you know in 722 when the Assyrians exiled the, the northern kingdom? You know what they did with their, their city? 
they destroyed it and they took all the stones for all the buildings and they threw in this valley and scattered them. Verse 8 and 9. Judgment is coming. Micah says, I will lament and I'll wail. I'll go stripped and naked. Now that's interesting. He's grieving. He's upset. Bizarre activity, isn't it? Naked, what's that all about? It was interesting. I was reading John chapter 21. Peter is there. It says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. This is after Jesus was resurrected. When Simon Peter heard it, heard that it was the Lord, he put out on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself in the sea. So maybe, this isn't he's just, you know, stark naked. Maybe he was just down in his loincloth, you know, or his, or his, or his inner garment. But regardless, there's a, for Mike in verse 8, there's a, he's not happy about sharing this bad news. And maybe this is just a word for us. Sometimes we share the gospel. You know, we want to share the gospel. That's something we, we encourage our people to do. We, we, we practice that. We train. Probably we need to do that more. We need to share the gospel. Without people hearing the gospel, they can't repent and believe. Lost people will forever be lost if they don't hear the gospel. In order for someone to, to go from being an enemy with God to being a friend of God, they have to hear the gospel. They have to respond in faith. But sometimes I think we, especially us young, zealous men, I think sometimes when we, sh we share the gospel, we're trying to win an argument. Sometimes. We're sharing the bad news about being God's enemy and how God's going to judge you. That should break our hearts. There was a, a mentor. He was, had a young disciple, a young brother in the faith, and he was teaching him how to share the gospel and he was pouring his life into him. And the young man came back and told his mentor, he said, yeah, I got to share the gospel. He was telling him about that. And he said, yeah, I shared the gospel and I said this and this and this and I was telling him how God's judgment, blah, 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 blah. And the guy said, well, what do you think about that? How did, how did I do? You think I did a good job? And the mentor said, I, I don't really think you did. He said, well, what did I do wrong? Did I, did I, not share this scripture, to not share that scripture. I said, no, you, you did that rightly. What about this? Did not, did not, not. He said, no, you, you did all those things rightly. And the young guy was like, well, why did I, how did, how did I not do that well? And the mentor, knowing this young man, he says, well, when you shared the, the news of God's judgment, did you weep? Did it break your heart? Of course, the young man got it then, right? Yeah. We have to be careful, making sure our hearts are right, even when we're sharing the gospel. We're not trying to win an argument. We're trying to present truth so God can use it to rattle the cages, right, of people's thinking, help them see clearly their sin and their need for a wonderful, gracious Savior. Yeah. Micah's mourning. He's grieving because judgment that's coming soon, not only to Samaria, Micah also recognizes that the sins of the north have had its effect on the south. Look at verse 9. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Bad company really does corrupt good character, right? 
So we see the, the northern kingdom being judged. And thirdly, we see the southern kingdom is judged as well, starting in verse 10 through 16. And, and this is a travelogue, if you will. The places God is going to judge in Judah. And if you remember the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, he makes his way after the northern kingdom has been exiled. He makes his way to the southern kingdom. And he wreaks havoc all through Judah. There's nine, ten cities mentioned here. And they're judged, destroyed, their people exiled or killed. And these names, there's word plays here on the names of the cities and, and the towns. And it's designed to express at least part of the nature of their judgment. It's almost like puns. Um, I don't know if you ever played the game Puns Intended. James, you and Elizabeth, you have, have you played that game? Do you know that game? Puns Intended. Oh, it's so fun. My family, we love it. It's a lot of fun to play. You, you need to get that one. I recommend that one. You are, they're game people, board people. But it's real fun to play that game. But this judgment isn't funny. The Syrian army led by their leader, Sennacherib, is going to roll through their countryside and destroy many places. In fact, Sennacherib, in his palace, he had a, a portrait of the defeat of Lachish on the wall of his palace. And he mentions many cities there. Verse 10, don't tell it not in Gath. And if you remember David's story, There was something that terrible that had taken place. Saul had died and his son Jonathan had died in the same battle. And David cries out the same thing. Don't let the pagan people of Gath have the pleasure of gloating over the downfall of God's people. And that's what Micah is expressing here in verse 10. Weep not at all. And Bethlehem, roll yourselves in the dust. The second part of that word sounds like the Hebrew word for dust. And so he tells the citizens, roll yourself in the dust. Cover yourself with dust. That's what you do when you're grieving. You put on sackcloth and ashes, right? Shafir is a beautiful word, meaning beautiful. You'll be stripped of your beauty. It's coming. Assyria's coming. They're going to be the instruments of my hand, God says. Zanon means exit point. There's a going out, but there's no exit for you, he says. Bethizel, there's foundation city. You're going to lose your support. Moroth is bitterness. You're going to experience bitterness at the hand of the Assyrians. Lachish is Famous for having horses, chariot horses specifically. And Micah says these will, they're going to be harnessed up, but the suggestion is they'll be harnessed up to flee, not to fight. Verse 14, you shall give parting gifts to Morasheth Gath. Morasheth means betrothed. You're going to be 
exiled and given to another. You're going to be judged. And your new husband is going to be the king of Assyria. Akzib is deceit town. You're going to deceive the one who depends on you. Morishah. Possession conquered. You're going to be conquered by another. And then Adulam. Verse 15. That was a place of refuge where David had gone during the time he was running from King Saul. While King Saul was still alive. He, he had, you remember he had a group of ruffians? A bunch of scoundrels. He just had kind of a band that was running with them. And that's where they went to hide. I think Micah here saying, you're going to be no better than them. You're going to have to go to that cave again. And look at verse 16. So here you see it, just a path of destruction. This is what's going to happen. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. For the children of your delight, make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Think, what's that all about? Sign of mourning, a sign of humility. Some of you are like, man, that joker right there is humble, right? Some people don't have much hair. I'm losing mine. Makes me think of, do you remember in World War II, the Nazis occupied Holland, a lot of the European countries. And what would happen is sometimes the ladies of those occupied territories, they would get real friendly with the German soldiers. And it was well known by the local people. And then when the Germans, of course, were defeated and forced out, you had all these people. They had been oppressed and mistreated, but you had all these women who had been taken care of, so to speak. You remember what they did? What they do? They shaved their head, right? A sign of humiliation, right? Yeah. What's he saying? Humble yourself. Judgment is coming. And look at chapter 2. He gives real quickly the, the reasons for the coming judgment. That's been mentioned in chapter 1, verse 5, right? Transgression, sin, the high places. But here we see in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2 the reasons for judgment. And we see in the first few verses there, you see injustice taking place. It causes God to act. Mistreating people because you can. That causes God to act in judgment. They've wrongly taken from others, and one day, all of that will be taken away from them, right? They were covetousness. There's covetousness there among their people. The Tenth Commandment, they were coveting other people's things. Verse 2, they covet fields and they seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Verse 3, thus saith the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a, be a, it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. It's interesting in verse 6. Do not preach. 
that's what they were preaching, right? They had false teachers there among them. That's what they're preaching. Don't preach. Don't say those things. We don't want to hear that. It reminds me, Jenny was teach, she used to teach Bible at a school, and she's teaching Bible, and she's sharing the gospel and whatever, and there's a little girl there, and she's teaching the, you know, in the gospel and all these things, and the little girl's doing this as she's teaching the Bible, teaching the truth. The little girl's doing this. And she didn't want to hear the truth. Isn't that something? That's what's going on here. Don't, don't preach that. Don't say that. We don't want to hear that. Message of doom, message of destruction. We don't hear the bad news. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Verse 7. Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? I like the last part of that verse. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? You know, if we're walking with the Lord, even when you hear a rebuke, even if when you're scolded with the truth of God, it's painful, it, it hurts, but in the same instance, it's so good, isn't it? And we welcome it, don't we? Yeah, man, that was good. I needed to hear that. That's the proper response if you're walking with the Lord. Man, that's hard, but I needed to hear that. That's not their attitude. Surely God is wrong. Don't preach those harsh words. Surely judgment's not coming. Verse 8 9, they become God's enemies because of the way they treated people. Look what it says. They've robbed men of their clothes, women of their homes, children of their inheritance. Their young children, you take away my splendor forever. Was God not right to send judgment against such a wicked group of people? Verse 10 and 11. Canaan, if you think about this place that God had given them, it's called the promised land, right? That was one of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a place. And it's supposed to be a place of rest because of all the injustice, the idolatry, the rebellion. It's, man, it's no place of rest. It's not even a place of rest. People who are there are being mistreated by people who can oppressed there's a lot of injustice look at verse 12 and 13 and we'll close lastly God's going to accomplish salvation through judgment I will surely assemble all of you O Jacob I will gather the remnant of Israel I will set them together like sheep in a fold like a flock in its pasture a noisy multitude of men he who opens the breach goes up before them they break through and pass the gate going out by it their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. You have this pronouncement of judgment on the northern kingdom, on the southern kingdom, but yet you have this announcement of mercy and grace as well. He says he'll regather his people after their exile and lead them. Isn't that awesome? Like sheep in a fold. He's the good shepherd, isn't he? He's also the, the breaker. He opens the breach and goes up before them. He's the shepherd. He's the one who goes before them, who clears the way. He's the king. And lastly, he's the Lord. He's going to gather a remnant. After this judgment on the northern kingdom, on the southern kingdom... There's hope still yet. And so we ask the question, well, 
when was this prophecy fulfilled? Well, 722, it happened, the northern kingdom. They were exiled. In 701, the king Sennacherib, you remember, he went through these Judah and destroyed all these cities we just mentioned. That happened in 701. We know in 586, the Babylonians are going to come and destroy and exile the southern kingdom. But when is this remnant going to be gathered together? Well, some say it happened in the incident in 2 Kings chapter 19. Sennacherib and his, he has hundreds of thousands of soldiers gathered around Jerusalem. He's already destroyed much of Judah and he's there gathered around Jerusalem. You remember King Hezekiah is there and Sennacherib pretty much tells him, hey, you're doomed. You just better surrender. Isaiah's telling Hezekiah, don't do it. Micah's ministering to Hezekiah. And you remember what happened? That night there was 185,000 Assyrian soldiers struck down by the Lord. You know what Sennacherib did after that? He took his ball and went home. I think it's time for me to go back to Nineveh. And that's where he did. And so some people say, well, this is this, is this hope and this is this fulfillment of this. Some say, well, it had to be Cyrus, the Persian king, after the southern king was, kingdom was exiled. After 70 years, they returned to Jerusalem. Some say, well, partially it had to be fulfilled there. Maybe so. But ultimately, we know this text finds its fulfillment in Christ because he is the one who paves the way, who leads the way, who makes the breach. It reminds me of John chapter 10 when Jesus is speaking to the Jews and some, they don't know what to make of him. And he tells them that he's the good shepherd who leads his flock and his sheep hear his voice and they follow him. And you know what some did as he said those words? Some embraced Christ and trusted him, but many did not. Spurgeon in his devotion, it's morning and evening, Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher, he writes this, he says, Inasmuch as Jesus has gone before us, things remain not as they would have been had he never passed that way. He has conquered every foe that obstructed the way. Cheer up now, thou faint-hearted warrior. Not only has Christ traveled the road, but he has slain your enemies. Do you dread sin? He has nailed it to the cross. Do you fear death? He has been the death of death. Are you afraid of hell? He has barred it against the advent of any of his children. They shall never see the gulf of perdition. Whatever foes may be before the Christian, they are all overcome. There are lions, but their teeth are broken. There are serpents, but their fangs are extracted. There are rivers, but they are bridged and fordable. There are flames, but we wear the matchless garment which renders us invulnerable to fire. The sword that has been forged against us is already blunted. The instruments of war which, the, which all the power that, or that the enemy is preparing have already lost their point. God has taken away in the person of Christ all the power that anything can have hurt to us. Well then, the army may safely march on and you may go joyously along your journey for all your enemies are conquered beforehand. What shall you do but march on to take the prey? They are beaten, they are vanquished. 
All you have to do is divide the spoil. You shall, it is true, often engage in combat, but your fight shall be with a vanquished foe. His head is broken. He may attempt to injure you, but his strength shall not be sufficient for his malicious design. Your victory shall be easy, and your treasure shall be beyond all count. And lastly, he writes, Proclaim aloud the Savior's fame, who bears the breaker's wondrous name, sweet name, and it becomes him well, who breaks down earth, sin, death, and hell. Jesus has made a way for us to receive forgiveness. You say, well, just by way of application, what do we do with this prophecy that was predicted this judgment upon the northern kingdom, upon the southern kingdom, and then also gives us some hope? God is, it's interesting, God is described as coming down from his throne, right? And we want him to intervene. All the judgment that he's going to pour down upon the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, it was fulfilled. He did that. It was just. But it's interesting how he talks about his chosen people. He calls them his enemies. But it makes us think about our own situation, doesn't it? We've been created in his, in his image, but yet we too because of our sin and rebellion. We are his enemies. And like the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, he too will judge sin. Every last sin is going to be judged. There's no sin that goes unpunished. Who is like the Lord in his judgment? But also who's like the Lord in his mercy? We deserve his judgment, his worst. But in Christ, he has given us his best. He's provided a way. He sent the good shepherd to take on flesh, to live among sinners, to live a holy life, to be our exemplar, to make atonement on the cross and defeat sin and death, finally, through the resurrection. God himself intervened. He came off the throne. He intervened in judgment, but also mercy. Where do you stand? Have you been redeemed? Have you been forgiven? Can you say beyond a shadow of a doubt that you've forsaken your life of sin and trusted the work Christ has done on your behalf? You say, well, yeah, I know that Jesus died. He died for all sinners. Nobody. Hey, little boy, little girl, man or woman. And I'm asking you, did he die for you? Has he, did he go to the cross for you? Did he pay your sin debt? When he rose on the third day, did he rise for your justification? We get real general, don't we? Yeah, God's good and he's good and giving us Christ and no, it's a specific question you need to answer. Jesus died for sinners so they could be redeemed. Did he die for you? Has he paid your sin debt? 
are you now justified because of what he's done for you? If not, you need to repent. Is it, Pastor, what does that look like? Well, you need to cry out to the Lord. Say something, Lord, like this. I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm wrong. I deserve your worst. But I'm thankful that you give me what I deserve, which is hell. But you sent Jesus to live and to die for me. And I'm trusting. I know that Jesus died on a cross for me and he was resurrected for me so that I could be made right with you. And I want to be right with you. Forgive me, Lord. I want to live for you from this day forward. Something like that. That's application number one. Application number two is I think God uses his word. Micah was God's mouthpiece. That's what a prophet is. He spoke these words of truth. And Jeremiah, which lives, which lived about a hundred years after Micah, records this about Micah's ministry. Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 18 and 19. Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring disaster upon ourselves. So Jeremiah mentions, yeah, Micah made a difference by proclaiming the truth, didn't he? 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 3 and 4, I've alluded to this already, of Hezekiah. It says, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. Sometimes when you're reading 1 Kings, 1 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, you kind of get confused. Is this a southern king, kingdom king, or is this a northern kingdom king? Well, if he says he does right in the eyes of the Lord, you know what? He's a southern kingdom king, Right. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. They made an idol out of it. Yeah, we see Hezekiah. All this happening. Why? Because of Micah. Isn't that wonderful? Micah shared the word. It was used to bring revival. Let's make sure that we're sharing truth. And let's do it in a way that's loving, that's palatable for people with weeping and with tears. Let's be faithful to do that. Okay. Come on up, praise team. We're going to sing us out the door real quick. Let's pray and we'll sing. Won't you stand with us? Father, we acknowledge your goodness. We're thankful for Micah. We're thankful for your inspired word that teaches us and encourages us. We recognize that we deserve your judgment. We deserve your worst. The th all the the grief, the suffering, the death, all of those suffered from the northern kingdom, all those cities in the southern kingdom, we, we recognize we deserve that. Everything above hell is a privilege for us because of our sin. We deserve your worst, but you've given us your best. You are gracious. To Hezekiah and those in the southern kingdom, we saw a revival take place during his life. And Father, you've been gracious to us. 
we can look back and see the prophecies fulfilled. But we know ultimately it's fulfilled in Jesus. He came and made a way. Made a way for enemies of yours to be called children of yours. We're thankful for Jesus who died. We're thankful for Jesus that he rose on the third day so that we could be made right with you. Our sins are so many. We're so undeserving. We are so thankful for your mercy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.